Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We've heard a lot this morning already that God's faithful. We've heard that he's a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Um, And that is a really good platform for the the word that I have to share with us this morning. Um, In light of where we are as a church right now, in light of everything that God's doing among us, I think it's important that we understand some of what happens when God makes us a promise. Because God has made us many promises. And I think it's important for us to know how we can best handle those promises of God that he's given to us. So I'd like to use some verses from Romans 4 as a basis this morning and uh, take also a bit of a look at some of the events in Abraham's life to consider some things which I believe we need to be aware of when God makes a promise. So I'd just like to remind us that God has promised us that we will reach the towns and the villages. God has promised us that we will be an Antioch church, building up and sending out. God has promised us that he will enlarge us through a quantum shift. And God has promised us that we will be a haven of health. God's made us some really good promises, hasn't he? (laughs) And in light of all of these things, I think we really need to know how we can best handle these promises. So we're going to read some verses from Romans 4, verses 17 to 24, but but just by way of an introduction, I'd just like to read a few verses earlier than that to you, and this is in the New Living Translation. It's verse 13 of Romans 4, and it says, Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. I just thought that was such an incredible statement that God made a promise to Abraham because he could see that Abraham was one who would pursue righteousness and pursue a faithful relationship with God. And it's into this relationship that God speaks his promise. God's standing outside of time and perceiving all of Abraham's life. He knew that there'd be high points. He knew that there'd be low points. He could see all of his successes all of his disasters, and his conclusion was, this is a man who is righteous through faith in me. This is a man who I can trust with a promise. And I read that and I was impacted by that because I thought, you know, in a similar way, God has decided when he's looked at our past and he's looked at our future, and we understand that he's the Lord of our history and he's, he's the Lord of our destiny, in all of that, God's conclusion is, this is a people whom are righteous through faith in me. This is a people who are going to make it. This is a people whom I can trust with a promise. And so it's into this relationship that God promises you will reach the towns and the villages. He promises you will be an Antioch church, building up and sending out. He promises you will be a haven of health. He promises that you will be enlarged through a quantum shift that I'm taking through. He trusts us and he blesses us with amazing promises because of our relationship with him. So we're just going to look at these verses from Romans 4 just now, and I'd just like to pick out afterwards three simple points that I think can help us with handling the promises of God. Does that sound like a good plan? Everyone on board with this plan? Yes? Good. Okay. So Romans 4, it's going to be on the screen for us, and this is from the New Living Translation, and starting from verse 17, it says, that is what the scriptures mean when God told, told him... 
I have made you a father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God, who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God has said to him, this is how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, he grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What a great passage of scripture. Romans has been, has been so good to go through, hasn't it? I've absolutely loved looking at Romans together. And this passage in Romans 4 this morning will be no different, I trust, in being full of goodness and full of the, the word of God for us. So I just, like I said, want to just talk about three things that we can see in this passage for us. Uh, the first of which comes from Romans 4, verse 17, which by Tim Chapman's amazing uh, magical thing that he does on the computer is now enlarged for us on the screen just there. Very good, Tim. Thank you if you're listening. So in Romans 4:17, it says, God told him, I've made you the father of many nations. And this happens because Abraham, believing in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. The point I want to make to go with this, which may at the outset sound a little bit unrelated, but please bear with me, is that the route to seeing God's promise fulfilled is underpinned by his love. Okay, the route to seeing God's promise fulfilled is underpinned by his love. So just bear that in mind, and we'll try and build ourselves towards that point. So we see here in verse 17 that Abraham believed in the God of death to life, and he believed in the God of new creation. What that says to me is that he believed in the God of salvation. Do you see that? The God of death to life, the God of new creation. He believed in the God of salvation. Therefore, he believed in the God of Jesus Christ, because he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to salvation. Abraham believed in the God of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe Romans 4.17 tells us, but we also see that for ourselves in Abraham's life. If you um, just have a finger in Genesis chapter 22, and then turn back a little bit to Genesis 15. So just get Genesis 22 ready as a bit of a, a base of reference. And then turn back to Genesis 15. We see it at, in Genesis 15 that this is the point where God makes his covenant promise to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and all of the nations are going to be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. But just before this, in Genesis 14... There's this very curious encounter that Abraham has with somebody called Melchizedek. Now, we see in the story, starting from verse 17 and, and going on 
for a few verses after that, that Abraham meets this person, Melchizedek, and he decides that he's going to give him a tithe of what he has. And if you start to look into Melchizedek and, and follow what theologians have understood about him, which we're not going to do right now, then you come to understand that Melchizedek is a type of Christ that appeared in Scripture. He's a, a this is a special word for you just now, he's a theophany. Everybody say theophany? Theophany. theophany. A theophany is, is somebody who appears as a type of Christ, but not Christ himself. So Melchizedek appears as this theophany, and Abraham says, on my revelation of who Jesus Christ is, I give you a tithe. He gives a tithe to God. He gives a tenth of what he has to God. He has, therefore, a revelation of Jesus Christ, and from this revelation, God says, I can give a promise to this man. I can give a promise to this man who has a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, because a people who have a revelation of Christ are a people who can handle a promise well. Because when a promise comes, it's got the thread and the grain of Christ interwoven all through it. So if we can have a revelation of who he is, then we're in a really good place to receive a promise of God. And you've got a finger in Genesis 22. Um, Feel free just to have that open as as we um, go through this morning. But that story there is the very uh, dramatic and impacting story of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac to him. And in that story, you just see these little glimpses of Jesus Christ all throughout the story. You see that Isaac, Abraham's son, carries the wood up the mountain where the sacrifice is going to take place, just like Jesus. You see that Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son, just like God was with Jesus. You see that God's God provides a lamb for the sacrifice in conclusion of it all, just like he provides Jesus, the spotless lamb, as our sacrifice. And as you see this promise tested, as you see Abraham's faith in this promise tested, you see this thread of Jesus Christ all through it. You see, I believe that the promises of God come to make us more like Jesus Christ. I believe they come to align us with Christ to make us more like him, to point us to him and to help us see him. And that's really important, not just to us, but it's really important to God that we become more like Jesus Christ. It's really important to God that we become more like Jesus Christ for loads of reasons, but for one that I want us to consider this morning is because it has to do with the love of God. It's the reason that my point is that the route to seeing God's promise fulfilled is underpinned by his love. Let me explain what I mean, because I appreciate that probably all sounds a bit confusing, potentially. I want to say this very, very reverently. God absolutely loves himself. God absolutely and completely loves himself. He completely loves himself, and he loves it when he's glorified. And you might think, is that a bit proud? That sounds a little bit vain. Um, Isn't it a bit selfish? But this is the person who is the total epitome of humility. This is the person who, existing in the form of God, did not cling on to his equality with God, but he humbled himself to human form, and then he humbled himself to the position of a servant, 
And then he humbled himself to the position of death, but not just death. He demonstrated, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He demonstrated the ultimate act of humility by innocently dying a criminal's crucifixion on a cross for a people who hated him. This most humble person, the most humble person, is the person who completely and totally loves himself. There's a fantastic quote from a sermon by John Piper, who's a a very well-renowned and respected theologian and speaker. And he says, from all eternity, this is great, from all eternity, the ever-existing, never-becoming, always-perfect God has known himself and loved what he knows. He has eternally seen his beauty and savoured what he sees. His understanding of his own reality is flawless, and his exuberance in enjoying it is infinite. He has no needs, for he has no imperfections. He has no inclinations to evil, because he has no deficiencies that could tempt him to do wrong. He is, therefore, the holiest and happiest being that is or that can be conceived. And to share this experience, the experience of knowing and enjoying his glory, is the reason God created the world. God loves to be glorified because God loves himself. He absolutely loves himself. He's perfect. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly holy. And he himself is perfect love. He loves himself and he's chosen to allow us to share in that love that he has for himself by making us his body. He's made us his body so that we can share in the love that he has for himself. And this, I believe, is what we see unpacked for us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 25 to 30, which is just on the screen. I'll allow you to to read that through as I uh, talk just now. Christ gave himself for the church. Why? To make her holy, spotless, and blameless. Why? So that she could be presented to him. Why? Because he who loves his wife loves himself. So in loving us, he loves himself. Not just by virtue of being his bride, but by virtue of being his very own body. Christ, who from eternity and to eternity always has and always will absolutely love himself, has brought us into that relationship by making us his body. That's why Hebrews 10, 14 is so important because it says, by one sacrifice, he has forever made perfect those who are being made holy. God's got to have a perfect body because he himself is perfect. There's nothing about him that isn't perfect. So God has, by one sacrifice, made us his perfect body. We are his perfect body so that his love for himself can be fully expressed in his love for us. But by his wonderful grace and mercy and sovereignty and goodness and faithfulness, we're also being made holy. We're being made more and more like him. The reason that all of this is so important is because when God makes promises to his church, when he allows the route to seeing those promises fulfilled to test us and stretch us and change us, it's because he's making us more like him. 
He's making us more and more like Jesus Christ, whom he loves completely, whom he loves fully and perfectly. All of this is to say that his self, who he loves, is ourselves. We are his body. We are his self. We're his body, whom Christ fully loves, loves perfectly. He's made us in his image, and he's transforming us into his image to be more and more like him. So every time a promise comes, it's to make us more and more like Christ. It's to bring us more and more into that understanding of revelation of the love of Christ, of his perfect body, whom is also being made perfect. That's why the route to seeing his promises fulfilled is underpinned by his love, because it's all to make us more like him, whom he loves perfectly. If you could just highlight uh, verses 18 to 21 for us, Katie. There we go. Thanks again, Tim. That looks great. It says there, even when there was no hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in his believing God's promises. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And the second thing I want to say is this. Being fully convinced that God is faithful to his promises produces in us clear hearing and diligent responding. I'll just say that again. Being fully convinced that God is faithful to his promises produces clear hearing and diligent responding. Our understanding that God always has been and always will be faithful enables us to hear him clearly and obey him diligently. We need to be able to distinguish his voice accurately and hear what he has to say. I know this because when I look at Abraham's life, I see that God made him a very definite promise. God promised him that all of the nations would be blessed through his offspring. But Abraham had to be so sure about the voice of God because in chapter 22, God tells Abraham to kill his son through whom this promise is going to be fulfilled. I don't know about you, but if it was me and I didn't know God quite as well as Abraham knew him, I might hear that word and think, that is definitely not God because God's made, God has made me this amazing promise and he's not now going to tell me to do this because, you know, He's made me this promise. But you know what? It's, it's really, really important that we know his voice. It's not enough that we just know about him. We need to know him. We need to know that he is faithful. We need to be able to hear his voice clearly. It will keep us going when his word comes, and we need to be really, really clear that it's his word. If we know who he is, it will keep us going. It will keep us going when circumstances come that seem to go against his word. For example, uh, a few months ago, um, Rosanna and I were in the process of 
buying a house. And God spoke to us in the middle of that process and said, you will see restoration in your house purchase. I thought, okay, I don't really know what that means, but that's a good promise. <laughs> and then we had our, uh, the valuation done on the house we wanted to buy, and the valuer came back and said, I'm very sorry, but um, it's not worth what you have been asked to pay for it, so I'm not going to give you a mortgage. I thought, hmm, okay. So we had a second valuation, and the valuer came back and said, based on my valuation, I'd like to tell you that the house is not worth anywhere near as much as you would like to pay for it, and therefore we are not going to give you a mortgage. And so in this situation, our mortgage advisor then said to us, uh, he phoned me up and he said, um, Will, this is just going to keep happening again and again. Whoever values this house is going to say it's not worth what you want to pay for it. And it doesn't matter if it's you or if it's somebody else. Um, it's always going to happen. Uh, and his advice to me was this. You need to stop thinking about this house and start looking at other houses. But God had given us a promise that there would be restoration in our house purchase, that we would see restoration in the purchase of this house which we were going to buy. And so... We respectfully said, thank you for your advice, but we'd like to try one more time. We'd like to try one more valuer to see if we can get the mortgage that we need. Uh, we had another valuation, which happened after the people we were buying the house off lowered the price because of everything that had been happening, which meant that we had many more mortgage options open to us, which meant that we could get a better percentage rate, which meant that we could pay less each month, and obviously the overall price was lower. And after all those things had happened, the valuation came back and said, yes, it's worth what they have asked you to pay for it. And so what we saw there was the restoration of God based on the promise of God, because he said, you'll see restoration in his house purchase. And although I couldn't see how that would happen, it took the trials and the testing for that to come through so that we were in a way more restored position at the end than we had been at the start because he's a faithful God and he keeps his word. So we need to be able to hear him clearly and we need to diligently respond and obey his word when he speaks. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit, when we're given a word, comes to help us to see it fulfilled. He comes to help us see the word of God fulfilled and he helps us in our hope. It tells us that in, in Romans 8, verses 24 to 29. You feel free to write that down. I'll just read it for us. It says, Now in this hope we were saved, Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. And then it says this, In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches the hearts knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. When God's word comes to us and we put our hope in his word, the Holy Spirit joins us to help us in our weakness, to pray when we don't know how to pray, and to intercede for us. But the important thing is, he doesn't come to do all the work for us. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to do all the work for us. He comes to help us. 
God speaking and us putting our hope in his word doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. We have to take action. We have to pray. We have to know that the Holy Spirit will help us and will intercede for us. When the word comes, we have a responsibility and we have to lay hold of that responsibility and take it seriously. A few weeks ago, um, in a smaller setting with, with a group of people, God gave me a very specific prophetic word that something was going to happen uh, in the future and that when it did and people saw it happen, their faith in God would grow because they'd see the fulfillment of this word. And it was quite a specific, and um, if, if you can say this, it was a word that put quite a bit of demand on God to see it be fulfilled. But God told me to bring this word and so... I diligently responded and I brought this word and the very next thing that God said to me was, you better get praying. (laughs) See, I brought the word but then there was straight away a responsibility for me to pray to see this word come to fruition, to pray and see God be faithful to his promises, to say, Lord, this is your word and I'm bringing it back to you and I'm praying to you and asking, Lord, please let us see this word fulfilled because I want people to see that you're faithful. I want their faith to rise when they see this word come to fruition and I want to see what you've said is going to happen, happen. We must take our responsibility seriously and be in action when the word of God comes. The final thing to say, there's, there's so much we could say about the promises of God. This is just really, just a little snapshot. But the final point is this. Believing the promiser and his promise will inspire belief in others. In Romans 4.22, it says, Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous, And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Abraham's faith, which counted him as righteous, was not just for his benefit, but for ours as well, assuring that if we have faith like Abraham, then we too will be made righteous. Abraham's faith and belief in God and his promises, you know, that inspires my own belief in God and his promises. I think if God can do it for Abraham, then God can do it for me too. If God can make a promise and and Abraham can see it fulfilled, given everything that goes on in Abraham's life, given his great successes and his tragic downfalls, if he can do that for Abraham, he can certainly do it for me too. Our belief in God and his word can provoke another person to believe in God and his word. I think we see that in in Sarah with regards to Abraham. Could you turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're just going to look at verse 11 and 12. This could be one of my favorite verses to do with the promises of God. One of. It says in verse 11, By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, 
even though she was past the age. Why? Because she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. She considered that the one who had promised was faithful. What is the result of that? Well, it says, therefore, from one man, Abraham, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah's faith, Sarah's belief that the one who had promised was faithful has this impact on Abraham, impact on his faith, and it says, therefore, from Abraham, one who was as good as dead came the fulfillment of this promise, came all of these offspring who would bless all of the nations, because Sarah's faith had an impact on Abraham's faith. It provoked his faith. And Abraham, in a similar way, and I just think this is awesome, his faith has an impact on Isaac. I just, this verse is very interesting. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 9. It says, this is just pretty much the last thing I'd like to say. Genesis 22, 9 says, When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there, and he arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. What I probably would expect to read there is when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And his son Isaac, all of a sudden, realized what was about to happen. He picked up a large rock and he smacked Abraham over the head (laughs) with said rock, ran down the mountain and left Abraham all alone. However, that's not what the Word of God says. Thank you, Lord. The Word of God tells us, I believe, that Abraham's faith in the promiser and his promise, Abraham's faith that had been impacted by Sarah, who believed that the one who had promised was faithful, he too believed that God was faithful to his promise. And his faith and his trust and his hope in God was so evident to Isaac, Isaac was placed on the altar. Abraham bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar. Old Abraham and young, strong Isaac, who'd carried the wood all the way up the mountain, who'd gone on this long journey and and had made it all the way, and he was this strong, let's say burly, burly young man, was placed on the altar by aged Abraham with no struggle, with no evidence of violence, not a large rock in sight. He was placed on the altar. And what I believe we see there is that your faith and trust in the promiser and therefore your belief that his promises will come to pass has the power to inspire that same faith and trust in someone else. 
And just with, with reference to this verse in closing, I'd just like to just point out a couple of things about this place of sacrifice, and I believe that God has a, a word for us. The place that Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him was a place called Mount Moriah. It's the same place that Solomon built the glorious temple of the Lord. It's the same place that a few chapters later in Chronicles, the awesome, glorious, cloud-like presence of the Lord comes to dwell in that temple. It's the same place that was considered throughout different generations to be a really important place of worship. And it's believed by many historians and theologians to be the same place that Jesus gave his life on the cross. It's a really important place. And this is the place where Isaac, impacted and inspired by Abraham's faith, allowed himself to be placed on the altar. And what I'd like to just just say in closing, and this is quite direct, but I believe this is the word of the Lord. There are people here who need to have the faith to get up on the altar. If you will trust the promiser and offer your life to him, then you will position yourself to see his promise come to pass. You will position yourself to see his glorious power and his glorious presence in your life. You will position yourself to live in the fullness of the salvation that he has purchased for you. And if you don't feel strong enough to do that, if you don't feel strong enough to get up onto that altar and say, God, I sacrifice my life to you, and in doing that, know that I'll see your glorious presence in my life, that I'll see the fullness of your salvation in my life. If you don't feel strong enough to do that, find yourself someone just like Abraham. Find yourself someone who is full of faith and whose faith you know will inspire your own. Find somebody who has seen a promise you've got over your life fulfilled in their own life. Find somebody who is faithful, who's trustworthy. Somebody who prays and prays a lot. Find somebody who you can trust, who will inspire faith in you. Get alongside them and allow them to place you on the altar. Our belief and our trust in God and our faith in who he is and in his promises will make us more and more like Jesus Christ. It's going to make us more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more like the one who he loves so dearly. He's made us to be his body, his perfect body. He's given us wonderful and awesome promises which he fully intends to fulfill. He has no doubt that we will be a haven of health. He has no doubt that we will build up and send out, that we will reach the towns and the villages, that we will go through a quantum shift and see the glory of God in this place. God's of no doubt of that. And Lord, I would just like to say that, Lord, we are in no doubt of you. Father God, we know and we believe that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you so much for all of the promises that you've made to us. Lord, what a privilege that you would find us to be a people trustworthy, that you would find us to be a faithful and righteous people, so much so that you can say, these are my promises to you, my children. 
These are all of the things that I intend to fulfill among you. Lord, thank you for those things. And Lord, we just entrust those words to you. We hold them up to you. And Lord, we, we tell you, we bring it back to you, that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so you consider these things to be so highly important, to be so highly lifted up. So Lord, we hold them up. We hold them before you, Lord. And with all prophetic power in our voice, Lord, with all authority that you've invested in our tongue, Lord, we say that we will be a haven of health. Lord, we declare that your word will come to pass. Lord, we declare that we will reach the towns and the villages of this area with the salvation of the Lord. We'll see people healed and restored and set free by the power of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you find us to be a people so full of faith in your word and in who you are that our faith would inspire others, Lord. That our faith would inspire others to offer up their whole lives to you, Lord. To see your glory manifest in their life. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We trust you. We trust in who you are, Lord. A faithful, faithful God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.